spoken word. A taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Welcome to the Spoken Word Show on 3CR Community Radio. My name is Waffle Iango. 3CR broadcasts from Wurundjeri land in the Kulin Nation, Stolen Land. We pay our respects to elders past and present. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today's show is a recording of a live reading by beloved Nam poet, legendary convener and photographer Michael Reynolds. In this recording, he is performing at the weekly event Cherry Poets that is held at the Cherry Tree Hotel in Cremorne every Saturday. This reading was done on the 13th of January 2024. Um, my, my first set, um, I'm going to start with, um, with, with, a, with a few silly ones and then a couple of, uh, couple of serious ones. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll, um, I'll begin with... Um, I'll begin with this poem, and it's called This Poem. (laughs) This poem does not rhyme. Okay, it does, some of the time. (laughs) This poem has substance and lots of other words besides. This poem will avoid cliches until the end of time. This poem talks about itself, a complete waste of poem, really. This poem has... an embarrassing silence. I just made that bit up. This poem goes too long, far too seriously long by half. This poem is really too long. Someone take Michael's pen from him. This poem is getting on my nerve. Lucky the page is about to thin. <laughs> All right. Uh, this, um, the, the next one is, uh, was, was written as a result of a uh, challenge to an audience um, one evening when Steve Smart had been doing a series of poems about invisible monkeys. And, uh, and at the very end of this uh, particular piece, he says, and now I'm giving them to you. And the audience went, <gasps> all, all at once. It was, uh, it was rather um, interesting. <laughs> and uh, anyway, um, this, uh, and um, I heard um, very soon afterwards, I, I heard a um, John Lennon quote about monkeys. Um, I think it was nobody here but us invisible monkeys or us imaginary monkeys. And so um, this is called um, Monkeys Spread Fleas, But Who's Spreading the Monkeys? With apologies to John Lennon. Somebody gave me an imaginary monkey. It's not as imaginary as I had imagined. It said, imagine, there is no heaven. I said John Lennon imagined that already. He said that was his imaginary name. I didn't believe him, told him he's a dreamer. He said, 
I'm not the only one. <laughs> there are nine of us. And we're not dreaming of the past, just jealous guys do that. The naughty one's called Chris. I said, so, this is Chris, and what has he done? He taught his fleas to say, give fleas a chance. I said, is that all they are saying? He became instantly calmer. Said he's going to get me. Going to get me through the night. He'll be playing mind games forever. Nobody told me there'd be days like these. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I, I, um, I read a poem some time ago in a, um, in a cafe in Belgrave, and when I sat down afterwards, the person, uh, the, uh, the guy at the next table said, um, I'd like to publish that poem. Wow. And so he's, he, uh, he, had a, um, he had a publication at the time called Australian Rationalist. And, uh, and um, I don't know what's rational about this particular poem, uh, but um, they, they actually provided really funny cartoons to go along with it. Um, but anyway, um, the, um, the premise behind this poem is... Um, is, is uh, it, well, it's about... Um, it's about the cuckoo bird that uh, lays its eggs in, um, in other um, species' um, nest. And this is called The Cuckoo Poem. The cuckoo poet doesn't write poems. He gets others to write them for him. He sidles up to unsuspecting poets and lays a thought in their mind, saying something like, flatulent tram passengers. Socks are the larval form of coat hangers. There should be more films about ducks on Channel 2. That's what we pay them for. And that thought, when hatched, its eyes closed and without feathers, an ugly creature that only the destructive instinct parental love can nurture, will push all other ideas out of the foster poet's head. The sonnet that will make his childhood sweet heart from afar fall in love, gone. The Nobel Prize winning epic about the life of Gandhi, no more. The ode to trees that's actually worth listening to, out. The cuckoo poet's thought grows quickly and is ravenous, swallowing bigger and bigger adjectives, similes, exclamation marks. The foster poet gets little rest, driven day and night, his creativity squeezed, twisted and sucked dry by the cuckoo poem as it mutates into numbered sections and rages against various authorities or rails against a past lover who probably didn't even know they were or pretends to mean something. No thesaurus or rhyming dictionary is safe from the demands a cuckoo poem places upon the hapless foster poet as he struggles to feed it. And when the cuckoo poem leaves its host after a long and difficult labour, its demands don't end there. For now, instead of saying, feed me, it says, read me. This, ladies and gentlemen, is when a cuckoo poem can be recognised by the foster poet. For a cuckoo poem has a genetic flaw, an unusual power of attracting involuntary cries from an audience like, that's a stupid poem, or don't read it here again. Unfortunately, 
A new strain of cuckoo poem has shown signs of resistance to this defence. Alcohol has been named as a cause. This could be a reason for alarm at pub readings where the spread of cuckoo poems may go unchecked. However, there are other ways of detecting them. The reader might state, I, read, I wrote this one today, or proceed the poem with an apology. The introduction is longer than the poem and the reader has difficulty finding the poem in their pile of paper no matter how small that pile is. If you discover you are in possession of a cuckoo poem, seal it in a heavy-duty envelope and send it to Mianjin, Overland or any other approved depository and they will safely dispose of it for you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Now this uh, this this one's a quite a uh, quite a serious one. It's the only um, it's the only poem that I have ever uh, written as a eulogy, and um, th there are um, people in the room who remember uh, a gentleman who died in two thousand and two uh, called John Norman. He's, yes. uh, he was um, yeah he, he's. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was better known um, to people in the um, poetry scene as Johnny Shakespeare. And uh, <laughs> um, uh, you either loved him or you absolutely were really fucking annoyed by him. He's one of these, he's one of these people that would sit in the corner and yell a lot. Um, and uh, so this is, uh, this, is, this is for John Norman, 1940 to 2002. At the Dan O'Connell Hotel, angry young man, fists clenched, stands over Johnny. But Johnny is one of us. Plastic leg crossed, cigarette in one hand, Guinness in the other. Eyes narrow, replies. No, I will not shut up. I will not be silenced. I shall rave on as much as I damn well like. Johnny's 100 pint club shirt brought to Angry Man's attention. 20 more here. Angry Man's girlfriend takes him away. Johnny grins, continues oration, amusing and angering 100 pinters. We'll let him do it. He's one of us. We know he'll be quiet when Pat McKernan sings, but he'll upstage the dancers by marching through them. When the song finishes, he'll quote biblical text or Shakespeare, or Elvis. We'll all say, shut up, and he'll grin. He's one of us at the art house. First one there, his Monday night chair near the fire is his throne. Smoking the tree of life, he surveys and comments on all. The microphone may be at the other end of the room, but the stage is wherever he is. First on the open mic, if the MC's introduction is too long, he'll join him or her and carry on regardless. <laughs> Kubla Khan was written 200 years ago for Johnny alone to recite. Words from a Shakespeare sonnet would ease from his lips onto his gesturing palm and drip between his fingers held out for all to behold. Any experience with Johnny is an experience. He was one of us, 
at the church of all nations, the preacher said to those gathered to celebrate Johnny. He'd give a commentary on every, ser- on every sermon, amusing and annoying us all. We let him do it. He was one of us. Flowers piled high on his coffin, tear-eyed pallbearers marching, his final exit to standing approval. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. You are listening to The Spoken Word Show on 3CR Community Radio. Today, we are listening to a recorded live reading by Michael Reynolds at the Cherry Poets event in Cremont on the 13th of January, 2024. This second half includes a reading of the poem Snake, written by D.H. Lawrence. Um, recently, um, Dorothy Popolis uh, from, um, from the Melbourne Poets Union um, was instrumental in producing a, um, a, a new um, a- anthology uh, which uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people in the room who um, contributed to it and it's going to be, um, it, it, it'll be um, launched next month. And um, I've, um, I, I contributed um, two short poems to it, which, which I'll read. Um, the first one's called Street Poet. Walking down Sydney Road, I saw a young man sitting on a bench seeking the attention of passers-by. He must have been begging. I, his next target, chose to pass by, and he said the word poem. I stopped. A poem for spare change? I said yes. He spoke softly. I heard traffic. I heard music from the record store. I heard a couple argue, but I couldn't hear him. I saw his face, I saw his sincerity, I saw his belief in words, but I couldn't hear him. He stopped, looked at me, awaiting my decision on what he's worth. I gave him two dollars and hurried away. I didn't tell him I was running late for a poetry reading. And, uh, and this is the other one for that uh, anthology. It's called Fishing for Words. Lolly wrappers, receipts, notebook, sleeve. These I use as a net to catch my fish. Small fish, mostly, but I'm after the shoal and must wait for it to swim by. My pen corrals them. I pin them down on whatever I can and wait for more. They become bigger as I exaggerate in their retelling. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I, I wrote this one uh, last week and it was the, uh, it's the first one that I've written uh, for quite some time. 
I'm pretty pretty happy to have um, to have got it out in time for tonight uh, for for today. And um, yeah, a very good friend of mine um, broke a uh, mirror in her house, um, and um, it was it was a mirror that had belonged to her mother, and um, and it was one of the few possessions of hers that that were previously owned by her mother, and she was um, she uh, was understandably quite upset about it. So uh, I wrote uh, I wrote this for her. Shards of glass shining sharply lie sprawled on the floor. I see pieces of me, my mouth open, a wide eye, a hand stilled in a too late to catch pose. In my mind, I hear my mother, not a cry of disappointment, but an ah well kind of sigh. After all these years, her kindness still tries to calm me. The frame picked up, regards me as blindly as love, fondly reflecting on its and my imperfections, smiling to know a new glass will bring mum and I closer together. Thanks. I'll, um, I'll finish. Um, I'll finish this set with um, with with a piece. It's one that I, I like finishing a set with. It's because it's called "And Finally," and um, anyone who's ever run a gig uh, will identify with this poem. This poem is called "And Finally," which immediately precedes the last one. Is that one is followed by. Just one more, which is a lead up to, I'll go after this one. Next is the one called Time for Another One, but I can't read that without, okay, I'll read the one I wasn't going to, which I thought was too long, but someone requested it. Then after that is, I'll finish with. Finally, I'll read the one called How Much Time Have I Got? Which ends with the line, oh, here's the one I couldn't find before. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I've got two pieces um, that are actually about my auntie. Now, um, the first one is uh, through the eyes of a five-year-old, um, seeing her on Christmas Day during uh, during Christmas dinner at uh, at the grandparents' place. Now, um, I, yeah, there were several aunts and uncles, you know, sitting around the table. Um, Auntie Denise would be standing in the corner, uh, just not being part of the um, of, of the Christmas um, celebrations, and uh, and and it really um, I, I really wondered about it. And uh, years later, I found out it's because um, she had a um, she had a baby that she was forced to give up for adoption, and there she was watching her brothers and sisters having Christmas with their children. She couldn't have Christmas with her own daughter. So um, this is, um, yeah, this, this one's called Denise. Just before dinner and in between courses, Auntie Denise used to stand away from the table, arms folded, looking at the floor. She didn't purse her lips, just the corners of her mouth, but I had the impression they ached from trying not to. 
The rest of the family at the table, some standing, some seated, as us small ones were, a row of eyes and ears, not understanding many of the jokes, but absorbing the jocularity and happy it was another Christmas. Christmas. Christmas was a drive to Ballarat to my grandparents. Ballarat will always be my grandparents. It was old like they were. And the finest dinners ever made came from Grandma's wood fire stove. To a little boy's eyes, Ballarat has been there forever and always will. And my grandparents' house in Sebastopol was centre of the town. Everyone was happy, except, so it seemed, Denise. Nobody else noticed her there, or at least nobody commented. When she wasn't helping with crockery or food for which everyone had to be seated to be served, she would step back and become invisible. Oh, she'd smile and give a small laugh when the atmosphere called upon her to do so. But when attention centred on the table, she'd make her lower lip bigger. But not by pouting. There was nothing petulant in her expression. The upper lip and corners of her mouth would simply become smaller. I've seen the rest of my family do this in times of deep private thought. I suppose, no, I know I do it too. But what I saw was sadness and a sense of either not belonging or deserving to belong. We children were on a bench seat against a wall, up to half a dozen of us lining one side of the table. For me to leave the table, I'd need to clamber over my brothers, my cousins, and avoid the outstretched hand of my father, swiping as he'd say, sit down. I dared not do this, but I wanted to. I wanted to run the gauntlet of my brothers and cousins' protestations and my father's hand to hug my Auntie Denise and ask her to sit next to me. I wish I had. <laughs> when I first wrote that poem, um, I wasn't quite sure whether it was, um, uh, it was appropriate to even um, read it out uh, in public without my aunt uh, first uh, knowing about it. And so I gave a copy of it to mum and, uh, and asked her to uh, pass it on. And um, the answer came back about two weeks later that uh, she refused to read it. She said she'll read it when it gets published. So um, yeah, I was very um, very touched by that. And yeah, it did, it did eventually get published. Uh, but I never, um, I never had the chance to um, discuss the poem with her until um, many years later. And uh, by this time, she, um, she was suffering from dementia. And she had, she, had a, um, she had a very lucid day on this particular occasion. And when I told people that I had this conversation with her, um, they, they, they found it unbelievable that, that she was in a condition at the time to, um, to be able to say anything about it because she was quite gone by then. But she did have the, um, she did have, yeah, she, she did have enough um, in her um, head to, to talk to me about that poem at the time. So this is, um, this is about that particular occasion and it's called Dad's Table and Denise. Auntie Denise 
said that was exactly how it was for her. We were at her brother-in-law's funeral. Early, mind you, the crowd still coming in. Celebrities and all, for he was on the radio and we were sharing a moment of calm before the morn. She liked my poem. I was glad. We didn't talk about his daughter, though. We talked about my dad and his table. You see, he had cancer. A school kid with something up his nose that wasn't funny. And a little sister who would do anything for him. And so the tabletop he was making in the workshed, taking hundreds of matchsticks to create, became the biggest thing in her life. A tabletop of matches. Not ones from their dad, mind. He was a pipe smoker. Matches from a pipe smoker are half burnt. Not good for a tabletop. So cigarette matches were the ones to be found in gutters, on the road, wherever smokers were around. Every walk home from school was a treasure hunt. Her mum would scold her about a school bag. She was told dropping it in the backyard was bad. But when she had a fistful of matches, not even a dump bag would stop her and her mum wouldn't tell her off. Denise laughed when I told her about the glass top of that table. Whenever he took it off to clean, he'd have to make several turns to fit it back. A couple of flips too, maybe, before it's on. The tabletop used to be an octagon, but it's square now. A side table with a pattern of matches, mostly collected by Denise for her sick brother, and once made, would help him, would help make him better. Auntie Denise spoke about that table only weeks before I was told dementia had taken hold. On the day of my book launch, she was there, but she didn't know who I was. This time last year, I, um, I, I recited a C.J. Dennis piece, and uh, yeah, I, I came here as C.J. Dennis. Well, this time I'm here as D.H. Lawrence because uh, the poem I'm going to um, yeah, I, I know most of it to recite, so I've got uh, I've got my Norton's anthology uh, as 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 a um, security blanket here, uh, but the poem is called Snake. And it was written just over a hundred years ago. It was written in 1923 in, while he was in Sicily. A snake came to my water trough on a hot, hot day and I in my pyjamas for the heat to drink there. In the deep, strange scented shade of the great dark carob tree, I came down the steps with my pitcher and must wait must stand and wait, for there he was at the water trough before me. He reached down from a fissure in the earth wall, in the, earth wall, in the gloom, and trailed his yellow-brown slackness soft-bellied down over the edge of the stone trough and rested his throat upon the stone bottom and where the water had dripped from the tap in a small clearness he sipped with his straight mouth, softly drank through his straight gums into his slack, long body, silently. Someone was before me at my water trough, and I, a second comer, waiting 
He lifted his head from his drinking, as cattle do, and looked at me vaguely, as drinking cattle do, and flickered his two-forked tongue from his lips, and mused a moment, and stooped, and drank a little more, being earth-brown, earth-golden from the burning bowels of the earth on the day of Sicilian July with Etna smoking. The voice of my education said to me, he must be killed, for in Sicily the black, black snakes are innocent, the gold are venomous. And voices in me said, if you were a man, you would take a stick and break him now and finish him off. But must I confess how I liked him, how glad I was he had come like a guest in quiet to drink at my water trough and depart peaceful, pacified and thankless into the burning bowels of the earth? Was it cowardice that I dared not kill him? Was it perversity that I longed to talk to him? Was it humility to feel so honoured? I felt so honoured. And yet, those voices. If you were not afraid, you would kill him. And truly, I was afraid. I was most afraid, but even so, honoured still more that he should seek my hospitality from out the dark door of the secret earth. He drank enough and lifted his head dreamily as one who has drunken and flickered his tongue like a forked night on the air, so black, seeming to lick his lips and looked around like a god unseeing into the air and slowly turned his head and slowly, very slowly as if thrice a dream proceeded to draw his slow length curving round and climb again the broken bank of my wall face and as he put his head into that dreadful hole and as he slowly drew up, snake easing his shoulders and entered farther, a sort of horror, a sort of protest against his withdrawing into that horrid black hole, deliberately going into the blackness and slowly drawing himself after, overcame me now. His back was turned. I looked around. I put down my pitcher, I picked up a clumsy log and threw it at the water trough with a clatter. I think it did not hit him, but suddenly that part of him that was left behind convulsed in undignified haste, right like lightning, and was gone into the black hole. The earthlip fissure in the wall front at which, in the intense still noon, I stared with fascination and immediately I regretted it I thought how paltry 
How vulgar. What a mean act. I despised myself and the voices of my accursed human education. And I thought of the albatross, and I wished he would come back, my snake, for he seemed to me again like a king, like a king in exile, uncrowned in the underworld, now due to be crowned again. And so I missed my chance with one of the lords of life, and I have something to expiate. A pettiness. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. This has been the Spoken Word Show on 3CR Community Radio. Thank you to our performer today, Michael Reynolds. Check out the geeks he convenes on the Facebook group, Passionate Tongues Poetry. Also, check out the podcast page for this episode at 3cr.org.au slash spoken word. Please tune in every week at 9am or subscribe to the 3CR Spoken Word on your favourite podcasting app. My name is Waffle Iango. Thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you at 9am on Thursday next week. Mm-hmm.